0: It's Palm Sunday. What a great day. This day we commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When he entered the city, he was riding on a donkey and the crowds went wild. They laid down their garments on the ground. They cut palm branches and laid them on the ground to pave the way for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And they shouted, Hosanna, which means save us, save us now. This crowd who only five days later would shout out, crucify him. On this day, Palm Sunday, they yelled, Hosanna. And we're going to read about the triumphal entry today. If you want to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Zechariah. That's right, the Old Testament. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. It's page 796 in your pew Bibles. The book of Zechariah, we're going to look in chapter 9 today. And we're going to see some incredible prophecies in this book of Zechariah leading up to the triumphal entry. But first, let's pray. King of kings, Lord of lords, dear Jesus, as we consider... This very day, 2,000 years ago, the king riding into Jerusalem. You are the rightful king of the universe. May you be the rightful king of our lives. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Okay, in 586 BC, a lot of you are familiar with that year. That's the year that the Babylonians conquered the nation of Judah. And they destroyed the city, they leveled the temple in Jerusalem. And so the able-bodied Jews back with them into exile back to Babylon. And for 50 years, Jerusalem and its temple it laid in ruins until Cyrus, the king of Persia, he then permitted the Jews to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild and settle there. And so then for the next 15 years... These returned exiles, they resettled in Jerusalem while the temple remained in, uh, it remained in ruins until about 520 BC when two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they began to challenge these returned exiles to not just be content in their own rebuilt houses while the house of God still laid in ruins, so from 520 to 516 B.C., for those five years, the Jews rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And it was during that time that the prophet Zechariah wrote. Zechariah, he was not just a prophet, he was a visionary. He looked at Jerusalem and he saw not just a dilapidated city with the destroyed temple, He saw into the future, and he saw the Messiah, Jesus Christ, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey during his triumphal entry. And he saw the perfected new Jerusalem that Jesus will bring, again, at his second coming, riding on a white horse. Let's read this passage in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. The Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise... Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets but behold the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike her down strike down her power and she shall be devoured by fire Ashkelon shall see it and shall be afraid Gaza too and shall rise in anguish Ekron also because its hopes are confounded the king shall perish from Gaza Ashkelon shall be uninhabited a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of Philistia I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth it too shall be a remnant for our God it shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall do and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. In waterless pit. In this passage, In verse 1, God gives Zechariah a burden, which can also be translated a vision. And this vision that the prophet has is a view into the future where he actually sees two triumphal entries into Jerusalem. One from Alexander the Great, which would happen nearly 200 years after Zechariah wrote this, and then the other triumphal entry from Jesus Christ, which would happen over 500 years after Zechariah wrote this. And although not all of Zechariah's prophecy in this passage was fulfilled by these two events, the the complaint of this passage won't happen until Christ's second coming. But the portion of Scripture that was fulfilled by both Alexander the Great and Jesus Christ is really spectacular. So that's what we're going to look at today. The Greek Empire... Trying to fiddle with this thing. Is this on? Uh, it's probably not on? There we go. All right. I'll snap my fingers instead. The Greek Empire, it became the world power in 333 BC when Alexander the Great defeated the Persians in the Battle of Issus, northeastern tip of the Mediterranean Sea. Alexander then continued his his march down the Mediterranean coast, conquering everything in his path. He went down through Hadrach, which we see in verse 1 the burden of the Lord, the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. Hadrach was a region in northern Syria. Verse 1 also mentions Damascus, the capital of Syria, which Alexander conquered. He then went through Hamath a neighboring region of Syria, mentioned in verse 2, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. After taking these regions, Alexander the Great continued his march down the coast, conquering and then Tyre. Notice Zechariah's sarcasm in verse 2. He says, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, they were also soon to be very dead. But they were wise in the ways of the world. They had a reputation for being very shrewd, business-dealing seaports, and they had made themselves very wealthy. Verse 3, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. Tyre, during this time, it was an island fortress it had already been destroyed by the Babylonians 250 years earlier. But they rebuilt even stronger. They had a massive fortified double wall, 150 feet tall. It was impregnable. Kind of like the, the, the Titanic was unsinkable. And the, the city was rich beyond imagination. Verse 4. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. The battle of Tyre took Alexander the Great seven months. He had just a small navy of surrendered Persian vessels, so most of his efforts came from his massive army over land. And Tyre was about off the coast. So what Alexander did was he used all the rubble from the old city of Tyre back when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. He took these stones, the timber, the dirt, and he threw them into the sea to make a causeway out to the island so that his army could reach the city by land. In doing this, Alexander not only fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy here in this passage, He also fulfilled Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 26, verse 12, which speaks of Tyre, saying, Your stones and timber and soil, they will cast into the midst of the waters. What Alexander the Great did to build his causeway out to the island. So once Alexander's army got to Tyre and penetrated its walls, they burnt the city to the ground. Just as verse 4 of our passage said, she shall be devoured by fire. From there, Alexander continued his march down the coast of what had previously been the nation of Israel. Verse 5 and 6, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. The region of Philistia is it's southwest of Jerusalem, right on the coast of the Mediterranean. In the four cities listed in these two verses: Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, These were four of the main cities in this region of Philistia. Alexander conquered them all. You see in verse 5 where it says the king shall perish from Gaza. The battle of Gaza lasted two months. When Gaza finally fell, Alexander took their king. He was a satrap, a local king named Betis. And he took their kings and pierced his ankles and stuck rope through them and tied the rope to a chariot and then had Gaza's King Badis dragged through the city to his death. The king shall perish from Gaza. The details of this prophecy are incredible. God's word does not return to him empty. Verse 7, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. The region of Philistia, it would no longer have blood in their mouths. Instead, they would be the blood in Alexander's mouth. They would be the abomination in Alexander's teeth. Verse 7 continues, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. Because as these cities were being overrun, some of their inhabitants would turn to the God of Jerusalem. But not the city of Ekron. The last part of verse 7 says, Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem before Joshua even led the Israelites into the promised land. This verse is the last mention of the Jebusites in the Bible. After this time, they disappeared from history, just like Ekron. So after blazing a trail through Philistia, Alexander then set his sights on Jerusalem, and his intent was to completely destroy the city of Jerusalem because they had not been paying Alexander the tribute that they were previously paying to the Persians. And so Alexander the Great had every intention of turning Jerusalem into a bloodbath. But look at verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall ever again march over them, for now I see eyes. So, in this verse eight, God Himself is saying that He will encamp at His temple and guard over Jerusalem so that none shall march to and fro. So, you have Alexander the Great planning to destroy Jerusalem, and you have God here in verse 8 saying, I'm going to guard over Jerusalem. Here's what happened. And and all of this is recorded in the historian Josephus' writings. The night before Alexander arrived in Jerusalem, the high priest of Jerusalem, his name was Yidua, He had called upon Jerusalem all to pray and fast and offer sacrifices to God in a desperate hope that God would deliver them. Later that night while he slept, God appeared to Yedua in a dream and told him not to fear but to dress up the city and to have all the residents of Jerusalem dress in white and for he and the other priests to put on their priestly garments and to open the gates and welcome Alexander. So the next morning, you do with a high priest. He told the people to do just that. And then he dressed in his purple and scarlet garments as the high priest and went out to meet Alexander the Great. Alexander, this bloodthirsty, godless conqueror, was so blown away by this elegant reception that he had received by the people of Jerusalem that he not only spared the city, he fell in love with it. In fact, one of his subordinates, they asked him how it could be that when everyone adorned him, Alexander the Great, that he should adore the high priest of the Jews. To which Alexander replied, I did not adore him, but God who hath honored him with that very high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit, when I was in Dios in Macedonia. In other words, God didn't just appear to the high priest, Yadua, in a dream that night prior to this. God appeared to Alexander in a dream several years before this, before he had even left Greece, showing him a vision of the high priest in order to soften Alexander's heart toward Jerusalem. If God is for us, who can be against us? So you do it with the high priest, he accompanied Alexander as he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. And before he left to continue conquering the world, Alexander asked the high priest what favor him? And the high priest, he asked that Jerusalem be free to obey the laws of God, and that they be exempt from paying any tribute to Greece. And Alexander granted that request. And then he rode off to Egypt, where he continued to conquer nation after nation for the next decade until his death in 323. How could it be that Alexander the Great, the most powerful man in the world, determined to decimate the city of Jerusalem, would instead spare it and bless it? Isaiah reposts as purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Nobody can annul God's will. Not Satan, not you, not even Alexander the Great. I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro, verse 8 says. Verse 8 continues, no oppressor shall ever again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. This promise has not yet been fulfilled because Jerusalem has fallen numerous days of Alexander the Great. But the day is coming when the king of kings will ride into Jerusalem on a white horse and when that day comes, no oppressor shall again march over them. In these first eight verses of Zechariah chapter nine, we see horrifying prophecy about the destruction of nation after nation, city after city, all of which happened when Alexander the Great passed through. He killed tens of thousands at a time. He took many more as slaves, and he left his flag of ownership everywhere he went. Mercy of God's divine intervention was Jerusalem spared when this violent king of Greece entered? Now we get to verse 9. And here in verse 9, Zechariah makes this abrupt left turn in his prophecy. He switches his focus from the destruction a wicked king would do to the salvation a righteous king would bring. Look at verse 9. Rejoice with me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the prophecy that Jesus Christ fulfilled on this day. Palm Sunday, when he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Two very different kings being mentioned in this chapter Alexander the Great and Jesus Christ. Rejoice, verse 9 says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Loud, o daughter of Jerusalem. That's exactly what they did when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The book of Matthew says the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were rejoicing greatly when Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem. They gathered to welcome the king, who, like Alexander the Great, would conquer their enemies and take over the world. So they thought. When Alexander entered Jerusalem, struck the hearts of every resident. But when Jesus entered Jerusalem, rejoicing flowed from the hearts of every resident, because he was their king. Verse 9 continues, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, it says. Jesus, he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as a righteous king. No one is righteous. No, not one. Except for Jesus. He came as a righteous king. Alexander the Great was not a righteous king was extraordinary he was personally tutored and taught by the philosopher Aristotle he was educated cultured powerful he was extraordinary but he was wicked Jesus Christ was ordinary he grew up in an obscure town as a carpenter's son he was ordinary but he was righteous He spoke through the prophet Isaiah, saying, There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Verse 9 continues, Having salvation is He. Alexander came to slay, he came to kill. Jesus came to save. Under Alexander's rule, hundreds of thousands of lives were lost. During Jesus' time on this earth, one ear was lost, and then it was immediately healed. Jesus came not to slay, but to save. He said in the book of John, He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 9 again says, Humble. Entered Jerusalem in wealth. Jesus entered Jerusalem in poverty. Alexander came in grandeur. Jesus came in meekness. Alexander loved his reception into Jerusalem. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Alexander came in pomp. Jesus came in humility. He was humble. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Back to verse 9. Mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Riding a donkey was a symbol of peace. David had his son Solomon ride around the city on a mule when he was anointed to be the next king. It was a symbol of a peaceful transfer of power. Alexander the Great entered Jerusalem on a horse in victory. Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey in peace. But the next time the world sees Jesus in Jerusalem, he'll be riding on a white horse in victory. John, in the book of Revelation, wrote about Christ's return, saying, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. But on his triumphal entry, he came on a donkey. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. No more chariots, no more war, no more war horses, no more weapons because the Messiah came to speak peace. Alexander spoke war. That was his language. Jesus speaks peace. He came to suffer the most violent death a person could ever go through in order to look his followers in the eye after his resurrection and say, peace be with you. Isaiah wrote, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither learn war anymore. The king of kings came to speak peace. Verse 10 continues: "His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." Alexander's empire was vast. It stretched three continents, from southern Europe down into northern Africa and east into Asia, all the way to the Himalayas. Jesus' empire is even greater, from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah, here in this verse, he's quoting Solomon from 72, which says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. Blood. The blood that was shed under Alexander brought death. The blood that was shed by Jesus on the cross just five days after his triumphal entry brings life. Under Alexander the Great, many poured out their lives, their blood for him. Under Jesus Christ, he poured out blood for many. The night before Jesus Christ died during his last supper with the disciples, he gave us a brand new sacrament, communion. And when he held up this cup of wine, he said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Last part of verse 11. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Alexander came to make prisoners. Jesus came to free prisoners. A, a waterless pit was often used in ancient times to hold a prisoner. You remember Joseph in the book of Genesis, he was placed into a waterless pit by his brothers. But when he was pulled out of that pit, he was sold into slavery. The prophet Jeremiah, he was put into a waterless pit by his enemies. But when he was pulled out of the pit, he was further persecuted and mocked. You and I were born into a waterless pit of sin. But when Jesus came and pulled us out of that pit, it was to set us free. He said earlier, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to set prisoners free. In this chapter, in this prophecy, Zechariah saw into the future, and he saw two very different events carried out by two very different Alexander the Great would enter Jerusalem as a conqueror. And because he spared Jerusalem, the Jews praised him. And they said, man, I wish we had a king like that. And then came Jesus, also riding into Jerusalem, 350 years after Alexander. And the people praised him and they said, he's our king. He's our Alexander the Great. He's going to deliver us from our enemies. They were all wearing their red hats, make Israel great again. What they didn't realize during the triumphal entry was that Jesus wasn't going to do any of that yet. He will when he returns. But when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he came to save the people from their sins, not from their enemies. He didn't come to make war with Rome. He came to make peace with God on behalf of all mankind, you and me and all who would believe in him. It turned out Jesus wasn't the the, the version of Alexander the Great that the people were, which is why many of the very same people who on this day, on Palm Sunday, shouted, Hosanna, would five days later say, crucify him. So I want to leave you with a question today. What sort of king are you looking for? Who do you want to be your king? Do you want Alexander the Great or do you want Jesus Christ? The two very different kings, what sort of king are you looking for? Do you want your king victory? here in your life on earth? Health, wealth, happiness, success. Do you want your king to deal swiftly with your enemies? What political party would you like your king to come from? Will you be happy with your king as long as he meets your expectations? If this is the sort of king you're looking for, you'll be sorely disappointed in Jesus. In fact, you might just find yourself rejecting him, walking away from him, after you discover the king that you thought he was. Just like the crowds who yelled Hosanna when he entered Jerusalem. What sort of king are you looking for? Do you see a greater need in your life than just your circumstances here on this earth? Do you see your failures and your guilt and you need a king to set you free, not from your circumstances, but from your sins? Are you looking for a king who can offer you eternal forgiveness from a holy and righteous God? Do you need a king who will bring you comfort and joy in the midst of your sorrow and suffering? If this is the king that you're looking for, then you'll get all that and more in Jesus Christ. What sort of king are you looking for? Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, king of kings, Lord of lords, what a king you are. And yet you came in such humility, such mercy, such sacrifice for us. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of much more than we can possibly give. And so we rest upon your grace. We rest upon the fact that you are righteous. Thank you that you give us your righteousness in return for our sin. Thank you that you entered Jerusalem donkey to make peace instead of entering on a horse to make war for we would be the victims instead of the victors. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have not, And you'd like to make Jesus the king of your life? What better day than today, Palm Sunday?